Hello, uh, my name's Lucas Nuss. I'm Kat McIntosh. And we're doing a uh, podcast about uh, the death penalty. And um, I'm going to be saying why uh, good reasons for the death penalty, why you should keep it. And Kat's going to be talking about why we should abolish it. Yeah, but before we get to that, we're going to give you a brief history of the death penalty um, and executions in general so you get a good idea of what we're talking about. And then we'll just jump right in. So first off, uh, the definition of capital punishment, you know, uh, what are we debating? Uh, capital punishment refers to the process of sentencing convicted offenders to death for the most serious crimes and carrying out that sentence. The specific offenses and circumstances that determine if a crime is eligible for a death sentence are defined by statute and are prescribed by Congress or any state legislature. This is the definition given by uh, the Bureau of Statistics. Um, this is, you know, formal definition uh, used by the government. So, for a brief history about executions, um, they've been around for a really long time and were originally like a public sport. Um, you know, the reasons for executions and death sentences are normally and have commonly been throughout history to like inflict pain or um, deter other criminals from committing the same crimes. So them being a public sport was part of that. Um, there were be like common, which we now consider barbaic executions like beheading, um, the guillotine. Um, there was one in China where they would put a man in a box with his head and his limbs sticking out he would be covered in like yummy honey and then they would let uh, beetles into the box and he would stay there for 17, 17 days until he had died because the beetles had eaten him so like super barbaric stuff the history of execution has always been a little sus um, in American history um, you know we still had a couple public executions, but it very quickly switched over to being behind closed doors as execution was seen as barbaric as time went on. Um, some of the things that people were executed for in American history, we would now consider really wild. For instance, um, you could be executed for witchcraft or for stealing slaves or helping them escape, which now we realize are things that obviously slavery is wrong and persecuting people for their religious beliefs is also wrong. You may think that a lot of these barbaric senses of execution have been phased out, but actually the last time the guillotine was used was in 1971 and it wasn't made illegal until 1981. Um, we now realize that the guillotine and other such methods of execution are very barbaric. You know, when you get your head off, cut off with the guillotine, it's believed that there are a couple seconds of lasting consciousness where you can feel the pain from your neck. Um, as far as death sentencing goes, that's really tragic and can be really difficult. And we've now switched to a more morally high standard of making death as easy as possible. And that is why in America, the most common form of execution is now lethal injection. The death penalty has been under scrutiny for a long time in the United States. Uh, in 1930, uh, 
the death penalty was at its peak with 1,520 people that were put to death. Um, the next decade, uh, it declined. There was um, 1,174 executed in the 1940s, 682 in the 1950s, and 191 in the 1960s. This information is brought by Corrections, a critical approach by Michael Welsh. Uh, it's on page 449, if someone would like to follow along. Um, the next statistics that I have are from uh, the deathpenaltyinfo.org, and it shows the great decline of executions in the 1970s. And the 19, since 1976, uh, which is when this um, whole uh, bar graph of deaths, uh, executions happen, um, there are like single digit deaths. There are only three deaths um, in the 1970s since 1976. Um, there are more in the 80s um, with the gradual increase. The peak happened in the 90s which, with 1999 having 98 executions total. But since then, uh, the 2000s and to now, there has been a great decline um, with only 11 uh, deaths happening in 2021. This adds up to a total number of 1,546 total executions since the year 1976. The demographics for this, uh, we've had 860 white defendants executed, 529 black, 129 Latinx, and 28 other uh, races that weren't as prevalent within the uh, execution demographics. Executions were also widely skewed by region. The South had 1,262 of the 1,546 executions since 1976, which is the vast majority. The Midwest had less than 200 at 193, the West only 87, Northeast had a surprising four, and Texas alone had 574, which is, you know, a, a massive demographic and shows that a lot of these cases are happening in Texas. In the 50s and 60s, there was a large growth of an abolitionist movement to end uh, the death penalty in America. This was largely propelled by a report released by the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice that declared that the death penalty is, and I quote, most frequently imposed and carried out on the poor, the Negro, and the members of unpopular groups. This report really helped propel those who were opposed to the death penalty. In 1968, an unofficial moratorium, or stop, on executions was established, and more than 500 scheduled executions were placed on hold while the courts decided the fate of the death penalty. In the same year, the U.S. Supreme Court decided on Witherspoon v. Illinois, in which it determined that death-qualified juries were unconstitutional. This basically means that juries of people who support the death penalty and didn't include any jurors who were against it was unconstitutional and they had to have an equal 
or a fair amount of both parties on the jury in death penalty cases. The moratorium became official in 1972 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on Furman v. Georgia to invalidate the death penalty. In this case, the court found that capital punishment violates the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The court concluded that state statutes were arbitrary and left discriminatory discretion up to jurors when imposing the death penalty. State statutes were considered unconstitutional specifically because they did not offer judges and juries any guidelines or standards to determine death sentences. The death penalty was officially banned throughout the country, and more than 600 prisoners on death row had their sentences commuted to life imprisonment. It's important to mention that in this case, the Supreme Court didn't actually find the death penalty itself as against the Eighth Amendment, and instead found the procedures surrounding it to be wrong. After this court case, the states decided to attempt to rectify the issue of arbitrariness uh, within capital punishment so that we could have a better uh, procedure for it. Uh, the case that overturned this ban on the death penalty was Greg v. Georgia, which is a landmark case um, that established a bifurcated trial structure, which essentially means like... Uh, you have to do it twice. Like, there's a sentencing for, um, you know, guilt, and then there's a sentencing for the sentence itself. So, that was obviously um, a lot safer. Uh, random people aren't going to get the death penalty for no reason with this uh, procedure enacted. This case is what caused the reinstatement of the death penalty. The Supreme Court also um, had the same procedures approved on Jurek v. Texas in Texas and Profit v. Florida uh, for Florida, obviously. Um, against this, uh, there were reverse cases um, Woodson v. North Carolina and Roberts v. Louisiana because those states uh, tried to eliminate the capital discretion of the case, which um, was not okay, uh, according to the Supreme Court. And in Coker v. Georgia, um, the death sentence was removed for rape uh, because it was deemed an excessive penalty. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but this isn't about my opinions. In a more recent case, in 2002, the Supreme Court made the decision that juries, rather than judges, must make the factual determination that subjects a convicted murderer to the death penalty. This basically means that... Um, Juries, a diverse group of people, have a better say over who and who is not convicted to the death penalty rather than a judge who may be may have a difficult time of being impartial. This case, Ring versus Arizona, invalidated capital punishment laws in five states: Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, and Nebraska, and counts and cast doubt in four others. Alabama, Delaware, Florida, and Indiana. In those nine states, there are nearly 800 death row prisoners. For those states, legislators will have to redraft their capital punishment statutes. As a result of Ringbrit v. Arizona, fewer prisoners will be executed, as it is much more likely for a judge to cast the capital punishment death penalty sentence than it is for a jury. 
With that, we conclude our informational section of the podcast. If you're interested in learning more of the history behind executions or the death penalty, you can find all of our sources below in the comments area. And I really encourage everyone who's interested in this to do more research. You know, we can only cover a little bit of the history of the death penalty in this. But if you're interested, I really suggest looking into it. Um, so now we're going to start the debate segment of our podcast. Everything is going to become a little bit less formal as we get more hyped about our own opinions. Let's go! Let's go! Let's go. Um, I'm going to be against the death penalty and lucas here is going to be for it let's go yeah um, all right well to start off our debate section i wanted to ask you cat only 1546 people have been killed from the death penalty um since 1976 in the united states of course um statistically that's really nothing like a thousand 500 people uh, compared to the 360 million that are in the United States that's not even that's not even close to a percentage uh, do you really think that this is an issue worth debating when it affects so m little people I mean I think personally that the death penalty debate isn't really it is a debate on the number of people being killed, but it's also a debate on the morality of us as humans. It's a debate on the amount of money going into the system that has been shown once, time and time again, to be corrupt. Um, it's a debate on whether killing people without proper justification of their crime, proper proof, is going to be morally correct in the long run. My question for you, actually, is you you seem to think that just because it's not really even a statistic that none of these lives matter, do you not feel like a moral obligation as a human to not want people to die? Well, that's a very interesting question, uh, bringing in morality. Um, the issue with that type of argument I, I see uh, with the death penalty is that there really is no standard of morality. You know, um, as you talked before, um, execution has been happening since, like, um, ancient times. You know, uh, the ancient Romans, you know, throw slaves in there with the arena and have them fight lions and stuff. Um, you talked about that Chinese really messed up way to kill people. Um, but... The, the thing is, morality isn't the same throughout all cultures. It changes with time. Um, and for the United States alone, there's no objective um, thing. If There's really only the opinion of individuals. There's no objective morality for the... Uh, entirety of the world. However, uh, within the society of the United States, which I personally believe that the law, um, the uh, verdicts, the sentencing for the law should reflect what the United States as a society uh, views um, as a whole. So, I, I would say if the majority of public opinion uh, agrees with the death penalty, um, and don't see a moral issue with it, then for our society, there is truly 
no moral issue with it except for a you know a minority of people who uh, believe in pacifism and that uh, all killing is wrong regardless but that simply doesn't reflect the morals of the United States um, there was a poll in 1999 uh, uh, that was quoted in the Welsh book that states that um, the majority of public polls have shown steady support for the death penalty um, granted this is in ni- uh, 1999 but uh, I, I do think that it really shows that there's no clear apprehension against this I think I see where you're coming from, and I personally do agree that public opinion and social culture shapes what is and isn't moral in a society, but I do have to disagree with you that people in our society think that the death penalty is wholly okay. I actually have a statistic. In a 2010 poll by Lake Research Partners, They found that a majority of voters would choose a punishment other than the death penalty for murder, and that only 33% of voters actually agreed with the death penalty. So I really don't think that a majority of American society thinks the death penalty is okay. That is an interesting statistic that you bring up, Kat. Uh, The thing that I would say is uh, what demographic is this statistic really looking at? Is it looking at the families of victims or people who have actually had uh, relation to uh, a trial that would cause a death penalty such as, you know, having your entire family murdered, which the majority of death penalty cases are for murder. So, in that respect, Kat, do you think the death penalty um, is a good idea if it allows the family to get the closure that they desperately need? I see what you're saying, and I have every compassion for victims' families. You know, no one should have to go through that, and I can understand where hatred comes from. But I am going to refute that by bringing up, we had a speaker in our class, Bill Breeden, who is a preacher for death row inmates. And when he came to our class, he told us a lot of things, but a particular story that he said really stuck with me. And after doing more research, I really think that it gives light to how I feel about victims' families. Um, He told us the story of Marietta Yeager Lane, who um, had her youngest child kidnapped while she and her family were on a camping trip. And while they were on this camping trip, her youngest child was kidnapped. Um, She was filled with hatred, anger, sadness, as I feel anyone would be if their child goes missing. Um, And a year to the day that her daughter was kidnapped, she received a phone call from the kidnapper. And Marietta, rather than being angry or facing this phone call with, you know, wanting revenge or sadness or being angry at him, decided in that moment that she was going to forgive him. Um, I have this quote by her. She says, when he called, I genuinely wanted to reach him. I don't think he was expecting that and I readily meant it with all my heart. Her concern and her compassion for this kidnapper actually kept him on the phone for more than an hour and allowed the police to track him down and arrest him. Um, Marietta, who is now like a big 
speaker for forgiving those who commit crimes against us says that she believes her forgiveness is the reason that they were able to catch this criminal and stop him from hurting anyone else's child. I also have another really powerful quote from Marietta that I want to bring up. She says, those victims who will not relinquish a vindictive mindset end up giving the offender another victim themselves. And I think that's really my opinion on victims' families who encourage the death sentence. You know, you're allowed to grieve in whatever way you can, but I think that it's important as a society and as people that we try to help them find a better way to deal with their grief, a way that's not vindictive, that doesn't hurt them more. Because I do think that in the long run, you know, if you are trying to have the person who murdered your family member also murdered in return, that's just revenge. And I feel it's just going to hurt people in the long run. Not to mention, and this is my next point, the large number of innocent people who are murdered on death row every single year. Um, What do we say to those victims' families? You know, they were convicted of a crime they didn't commit, and then they were murdered because of it on death row. Do we tell those victims that we can now murder the executioner because he murdered their family member? No, that's not how it works, and I don't think that that's how it should work in any type of crime. You know, Kat, it's actually interesting that you would bring that up because uh, I I have done some research on the subject, and from deathpenaltyinfo.org, there is a chart and with listing of all exonerations from the death penalty, from death row, sorry. Um, And as stated before, there was only 1,546 executed death row inmates since 19... 76. There have been 187 exonerations of innocent people from the death penalty um, since uh, 1973. That, to me, shows that there's really not as much fear of innocent people being executed as it is made to sound. They're, these are innocent people. They have appealed to the court, and they have been exonerated because they were able to prove that they were innocent. They, you know, uh, innocent people have gotten off of being tried because, you know, they were innocent. Uh, you know, uh, and the guilty people who have done the horrible things are being executed. You know, this is the reason that there's such a long time period that uh, death row mates are on death row and are not immediately executed. So they have time to show the court that they aren't guilty, to show that, you know, just to have time to appeal and to, you know, uh, repent for their sins if they are guilty. It's, It's really designed to prevent... Um, innocent people. That's why we have the bifurcal um, trials that we talked about earlier. It's really not easy to get innocent people executed from death row uh, with all of these like stopgaps and stuff preventing it. 
You know, I... I can see where you're coming from, but I actually have several points on this. First of all, it's so very easy to have a wrongful conviction of someone. A lot of things go into convictions. Um, you have eyewitness statements that may be wrong. You have technology that may malfunction and have the wrong proof. You have coercion of the police officers to get confessions out of people when they didn't really do it. And, you know, I can see where you're coming from, but I think it's just way too easy for innocent people to get convicted in the first place. And then for them to be allowed to be placed on death row is a whole nother thing. I actually want to bring up two different cases that I really feel prove my point that innocent people can very easily get convicted. Um, firstly, I'm going to bring up the case of Cameron Todd Willingham, which is my most recent case that I'm going to talk about. Um, and it happened in like 2008. Um, so Willingham was a father of three children and he was convicted and executed for their death when they died in a house fire. Um, it was believed by prosecutors that he had set the house on fire and willfully intended for them to die. But after a lot of examination and a number of arson experts looking into this, they have decided now that there's it's just highly unlikely that he started a fire and that the fire didn't just start on its own. And yet to this day, despite numerous experts coming forward and a number of doctors who specialize in this saying that they believe that it couldn't have possibly be him, they still refuse to exonerate him. Um, another case that I wanted to talk about was George Stinney. And this case is from a, like a long time ago, to be fair, but I still think that it, the ramifications of it still show up in America's society today. So George Stinney was a 14-year-old African-American boy who was electrocuted in South Carolina for the murder of Betty June Binnaker, who was 11, and Mary Emma Thames, who was eight. These two little girls um, were riding their bikes past his house, and they stopped to ask him and his sister about a certain type of flower. They weren't seen alive again, and the next day were actually found dead in a ditch. Um, so, police arrested George Stinney because he was the last, last person seen with them, and they interrogated him for an hour, which, after an hour of interrogation, he confessed to the crime. But I think it's important to mention in that confession that he was a 14-year-old boy. Um, he was the youngest person executed in the United States, and 70 years later, a judge threw out the conviction saying that it was a great injustice. I feel like this case in particular just shows how easily it is to coerce a uh, confession out of someone, especially younger people, especially marginalized people. And it, I feel like it just shows the injustice that comes with the death penalty or including it as a sentencing option in general. And on that same manner, that case can be used to show how people of color and other marginalized groups are often treated in our criminal justice system and how they're proportionally more affected by the death penalty than white people. 
that is a very interesting case, Kat. And I, I definitely do think that it was an injustice that such a young person would be, uh, you know, uh, charged with the death penalty. However, um, I, I do think it is very important to uh, note the fact that this case was 80 years ago. And although he was African-American, it, there has been the whole civil rights movement between then and now. And every, every day uh, people are fighting um, to to get more equality. So I, I don't really agree with the statement that this still shows um, how uh, minorities are treated uh, nowadays. I, I have um, some statistics of the race of the defendants that were executed with the uh, death penalty. And the majority of capital punishment has actually taken place on white people um with 80 860 sorry about that 860 white people have been executed of the um previous 1546 that was stated earlier uh, while 529 percent uh, no five percent 529 um black people and 129 latinx with 28 other races being executed the strange thing is about this that this is almost exactly in line with the amount of inmates within federal prisons uh, according to race. Um, there's 89,000 uh, white people in federal prison and um, 59,000 um, African Americans, which, as said before, 860 peop- uh, white people were executed. 529 um, black, that's almost an exact proportion. Uh, obviously not quite, nothing's perfect, but it's extremely close to the proportion of um, people that were, you know, put in federal prison to begin with. So I'm not sure if saying that, um, you know, the death penalty itself is at all racist um, when it's in line with the rest of our criminal justice. Um, also, um, in another statistic, um, there's actually been more African Americans that have been exonerated. Um, going back to the uh, exoneration um, statistics I brought up earlier, there have been 67 um, white people exonerated of the 187, and 101 um, black people, um, the rest being other marginalized groups. But it, you know, you look at the proportions, um, there's more white people than uh, black people on death row, but there's more black people that are getting exonerated. It seems to me like um, the system is, you know, not allowing itself to uh, be racist. Like, uh, the people who are put in there falsely because of their race are getting exonerated, at least um, to some extent. So, I, I, I would definitely refute that um, this case has anything to show of the, you know, racist um, perspective of capital punishment. I personally just can't agree with you on this, and I think that that is how I feel about a lot of the things that you've said. I, I, I see where you're coming from, and you do have statistics to back them up, but I, I personally do think that we should abolish the death penalty and 
if I'm correct in saying this, I think that you are stuck on the opinion that we should keep it, correct? Uh, yes, I, I would say that is correct. So, I think maybe now would be a good time. We seem to be at an impasse. I think it would be a good time to talk about some things that we have in common um, and have a little opinion bit where we talk about some of the commonly used arguments arguments to um, reinforce the uh, death penalty case that both you and I can agree don't really hold up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I definitely think we should, uh, you know, state our opinions and um, really... really show how we feel about it. So, like, the first thing that I wanted to bring up is that a common argument that people who are on the pro side of the death penalty commonly bring up is that it's much cheaper to execute someone than it is to have them live life in prison. Which it simply isn't. It I, just, I'll admit that. It just isn't. Um, we have the statistic here that... Um, is the report of the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice, and they've summed it up for us. They basically say that using conservative rough projections, they estimate that the annual cost of the present death penalty system is about $137 million per year. Um, They also include in their report um, what the cost of the present system with reforms recommended by them would be, and these reforms reforms would ensure a fair process. The cost with these reforms is $232.7 million per year. Alternatively, if you were to have a life sentence, the cost of a system which imposes a maximum penalty of lifetime incarceration would be about $11.5 million per year, which is, I think we could both agree, substantially less yes yes um definitely um i you know it's it's around ninety thousand dollars per inmate um the highest that a state pays for you know your average inmate that's not on death row um is you know sixty-one thousand. um the lowest being around twenty-five thousand. um there's a big um yeah, uh, you know, disparity there. Although I would say that, you know, like I said earlier, it, it really brings closure to some of the families, and it, it, it's reserved for most heinous criminals. Um, I I would say that you can't put like a price on something as important as closure for a family. Uh, person whose family has been, you know, seriously harmed from a person, you know? Not to argue with you about that, but they have put a price on it, and it's $137 million a year. I Um, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. (laughs) It's quite large, and I I genuinely, like I said earlier, think that there should be a better way for helping victims of families that's not revenge-based. $137 million a year just reinforces that point, in my opinion. Another, like, argument that I want to bring up now is um, the argument of deterrence. A lot of advocates for the death penalty like to say that it discourages uh, other criminals from committing crimes because they're scared that they're going to be killed by the state, which in and of itself, that statement kind of seems a bit, 
sus to me and that it shows how barbaric our society is, but that's not what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about is how it also doesn't do that. It doesn't discourage criminals from committing crime. Yeah, so, um, I mean, statistically, um, there are more um, murders in the South where the death penalty is the highest. Um, You know, I I, I will admit that um, the deterrence factor doesn't really stop other criminals. However, what it does stop is it stops those criminals from ever committing crimes again. I mean, you know, because, you know, they're they're dead. And I, I feel like it's about that like these people have done heinous acts um it, it, it normally requires something murder or worse to be put on death row like and these people are are just being stopped from ever doing something like that again you know you could say well they wouldn't be able to affect a society if they were just put in uh you know a prison or, or jail well inmates murder other inmates all the time it's it's very common. There's a lot of prison violence. There's nothing saying that these people, you know, wouldn't do the same thing um, in a prison, you know, and, and kill other people. I mean, obviously, they aren't innocent people, but there's still people, nonetheless, who have done nothing close to the severity of the crime that they have been put on death row for. Um, like I see where you're coming from. Uh, and I can understand maybe the community protection aspect of it, which is also another um, commonly stated opinion. But I would like to refute that just a little bit and say that there have been studies that point, that show that paroled murderers have an extremely low rate of committing murder once again after lengthy prison terms. I do see where you're coming from because there is still a chance, but I think we just need to keep in mind that just because they murdered someone once does not mean they will murder someone again. Um, Finally, I think that I just want to get your personal opinion on something that troubles me. Um, What is your opinion on death penalty sentences on those who are mentally ill or juveniles? Um, how do you feel, like, do you feel like those circumstances changes your opinion on the death penalty? You know, I, I personally believe that uh, mental illness, um, someone, someone with extreme mental illnesses should not be put on death row. Um, you know, uh, they, they need help. They don't, dis- they don't need, um, you know, be executed. And I, I think that um, uh, through uh, a lot more practice, um, uh state will come to understand that and will eventually pass law stopping it. As, as per the juvenile part, um, the juveniles in this question, um, there's only been 22 executed juveniles and they were um, convicted at the age of 16 to 17, um, which was considered juvenile. I I would say that um, you know, uh, for, for the court to decide to put a juvenile on there, um, they would have to do something, you know, pretty terrible. Um, most people are, you know, a, a, a little bit, a good bit nicer to 16, 17 year olds and um, uh, older people. However, um, I, I, I personally would say that they have the mental cognizance um, to understand um, the actions they were doing. You know, 
um, at a younger age, you know, if an eight-year-old were to kill someone, you know, uh, they, they probably didn't understand what the act of killing was and, um, you know, uh, d- did it with their uh, clothes-off mindset. But at that age, I, I don't think that's an excuse. Um, for for the death penalty in general, I, I definitely see a lot of the, um, you know, arguments made against it. And I, I would actually like to... Um, offer up an alternative um, way of sentencing. I would say personally that, um, you know, a life without parole or the death penalty, um, from a societal standpoint, you know, they're not going back out into the society at all. Um, And I see that there is a very, you know, large, um, you know, movement to put um, the death penalty um, to replace it with life without parole plus restitution. Um, this is from a, uh, a poll from 2010 by Lake Research Partners. Um, 39% of all the voters um, said life without parole plus retention. I, I would argue that the defendant uh, would actually have a choice in the matter. I, I believe, you know, some people would rather die than have life without parole plus restitution and um I, I i believe that that should be in the right um you know and it should give the families you know if the families want that as well it, it will give them you know uh, uh the closure at the so um that they need uh desperately and if if not if if both parties um don't want the death penalty form life without parole plus restitution is a great alternative and i i believe that both of them should be uh, possibilities and we shouldn't just limit it to the death penalty or life without parole um, and I, I think that will um, really stop a lot of the um, you know debates with this and just the points of contention that people have towards the government uh, forcing people to die you know I think that I can agree with you on that I do think that there should be multiple options for sentencing And I do think that life imprisonment can be torture for some people. You know, with the way that our prison systems are today, they are not at their finest. And I could see and understand people who would rather um, choose an alternative route than have to go through with that for their entire lives. So I think I agree with you on that point. Um, I think on that note, we've reach the conclusion of our show yeah um th- thanks for uh, listening in on to our podcast and um we will have all the uh statistics and evidence um within the description thank you all for listening and we hope that you have a great day bye bye